and it was only a matter of days before news filtered through from Australia to the New Zealand coppers that this was the most wanted man in two countries. He was a multiple bank robber who'd escaped from Pentridge and was extremely hot. Crooks in the end always lag each other in. I'm Andrew Rule. Welcome to another edition of Life and Crimes. This is the tale of one of Australia's most unusual bank robbers. The name he went under was Doc Smith. He was born Gregory David Peter John Smith or something like that in 1952. And I think his father might have been an American or Canadian chef who met and married a Melbourne woman and had a family. And young Greg, who later became Doc, was one of them. And another brother, I think Nick, became a prominent Melbourne rock musician, which is an interesting bit of trivia. And Greg, the man we're talking about, went to a good Catholic school in the inner suburbs, became a pretty good rugby player very good swimmer. He was a powerful, thick-set, athletic fellow, very strong, highly intelligent. He had great charisma. He probably would be diagnosed by psychiatrist as a narcissist. He had a very high opinion of his own abilities, which were considerable. Doc Smith, alias Gregory David Roberts, became the Building Society Bandit. This happened because Doc Smith developed a fierce and raging heroin habit as a university student at Melbourne University. He did nothing by halves and his taste for heroin meant that he soon needed more money than he could afford. So he took to robbing building societies, which were then like small banks. They had cash, but they weren't particularly well guarded or armed and were relatively easy to bowl over. He claims rightly or wrongly, that he had an unloaded twenty-two pistol which he would roll up in a newspaper and take into these small offices and do the robberies. He became so prolific that not only he earned the name the Building Society Bandit, I think he set a record of 26 consecutive robberies. This was interesting because he ran up quite a big total of money. This is in uh, the very late 70s. And every time he did a robbery, the money would be published in the paper as a certain sum. But he later assured me that he had, in each case, taken far less than that and that he suspects that the building society managers or tellers or police were helping themselves to cash (laughs) when after the robberies and putting it down to the robbery. So if he escaped with $5,000, inevitably (laughs) the figure that went to the insurers was, you know, double which is interesting. Eventually, of course, the police caught up with him. Somehow or other, I think he fell out with somebody who knew what he was up to, and they had a word to the police because crooks in the end always lag each other in. When one crook is arrested for something, inevitably the police say, well, can you help us with something else? And usually the crook knows some information that can be traded as a way to uh, lessen their own problems with the police. And this is what happened to Doc Smith. He was sold down the river by a fellow offender. The police caught up with him up at Mount Macedon, where I think his mother had a small holiday house. And that's where he was hiding out. And all he had in the house was a fur coat that he'd bought for his mother and a very nice Monero Holden car, 
which was a V8 and very sought-after vehicle in the late 70s. And this was interesting because this vehicle caught the eye of the police who arrested him, the armed robbery squad of the day. And one of them said, um, they said, Greg, uh, you're going to go away for a very long time. I think you should sell me the car. Here's the papers. Can you sign it over? <laughs> and gave him, oh, perhaps a fifth of its value in cash and said that'll be handy for your legal defence. And so the policeman in question got the Monero and poor old Doc Smith got a lot less than it was worth. And they also took his mother's fur coat and he never forgave them for that. He goes to court. He pleads, um, I don't know what he pleaded, but he was convicted. <laughs> he was convicted of most of these robberies and he goes to jail in Pentridge Prison. And there, because he's a new boy, and he's come from basically university, although he's an armed robber. He's not really someone who's knocked around with criminals. He's not part of the underworld. And one of the first people he runs into in jail is Mark Brandon Chopper Reed. And Reed had worked out that they were going to put this guy in H Division because he was considered a high risk of escaping. And Reed said to him, what are they going to do? Because they do it to all of us when we go into H Division. When you walk down the corridor into H Division... They will line up. This is the prison officers known in jail, of course, as screws. Their official, unofficial, official title is screws. And they have their batons and they will flog you as you walk down the corridor to join H Division. And he said, what you should do is hold your head high and accept the thrashing you're going to get because that way you will gain respect. Don't show fear. So that's what he did because Chopper Reed had advised him so to do. He goes into H Division and after a while he behaves himself. He learns to borrow books from the prison library and carry them down stuffed in his shirt under his belt around his torso so that when one of the other crooks wants to stab him in the line while they wait for food or whatever, the sharpened toothbrush or the sharpened piece of wire will not go through the book and therefore not kill him. These are the precautions he learned to take. He was in fact a very keen reader but he became even more keen when his life depended on it. He eventually gets in a section of the jail where he is able to demonstrate that he is a trustworthy prisoner and intelligent and useful, all of which he was. He was highly intelligent, highly articulate and quite charming, very charismatic fellow. And he formed an alliance with a large and tough prisoner who was in for murder. And I think they came to do certain maintenance jobs around the prison or they knew people who were doing maintenance jobs around the prison. And it came to pass that through that work or activity, he was able to obtain a long electrical lead, an extension cord, a very long one, a thick, strong industrial one that could run electric drills and all that sort of stuff. And he was able to secrete this lead, which an electrician or someone had left in there. He was able to hide it away in the roof space of a certain section of the prison. And then on a given day, he was able to get himself into that section, get himself into the roof space, get the electrical lead, tie it off on a rafter and throw it out over, out a window and down and uh, into another section and then use it to climb the outside wall and climb down the outside wall of Pentridge. He pulled off this most daring escape in broad daylight one sleepy afternoon in 1980. It might have been something like a public holiday or a Sunday or something to do with Christmas or New Year but anyway, it was a day when the Prison officers were, there weren't many of them there, and those that were there might have been a bit sleepy because they'd been, you know, celebrating or something like that. 
So he climbs down the outside wall using the electrical lead and he escapes with his friend, the murderer. But what he did then was very clever. He thought to himself, if I hang around with this man who is the murderer, who is an underworld figure, we will be caught because the police will know where to look for him and if they find him, they'll find me. So he said, see you later to his friend. And what he did was he sneaked off into Carlton and I believe he slept a night or two or perhaps three in the house of a well-known author who harboured him for a couple of days. Now, this may or may not be true. This is a story he told me. I believe it to be true. I see no reason why this would not be true because you have to remember that Doc Smith was a Melbourne Uni student. He had been a very activist student who had joined all sorts of protest groups and he knew a lot of left-wing union radicals through his student activism and he knew the sort of Carlton literati and artists and musicians and those sort of people. He he was well-connected right through those fields. And it is suggested that the author that he stayed with was a female author who later became quite famous and, in fact, wrote a novel based in Carlton about heroin addiction and such things. This may or may not be true. What is true is that he later moved on out towards La Trobe University because he knew that there he would be mixing with people that he could identify with and he would be mixing with people who would not be mixing with criminals and who would not be mixing with police and who would probably be very staunch and not dob him in. And when he got out there, he actually ran into a tutor who recognised him, someone who knew him. And the tutor winked at him and said, I know who you are, but, you know, stay safe or whatever, and suggested that he go and stay here or there. And he did. He stayed at some student house and he stayed out of sight and he associated only with academics and students. And then he called on some of his old union mates from his activist days. And indeed, I think it was Norm Gallagher, the late Norm Gallagher of the infamous BLF. Norm was a very radical BLF leader who became the sort of Robin Hood of the union movement. He would take building materials and money from the rich developers and use them to build holiday houses for himself. And so it came to pass that one day his union contacts spoke to him and said, listen, if you can get out to the airport at Tullamarine tomorrow morning at dawn, we've got an early flight to Perth on a union convention and there's six of us going, but if uh, you turn up, you can be one of the six. So he gets on a motorbike with a friend of his and they put on helmets, which means you can't see his face. And they ride the motorbike to the airport. His friend drops him off right on the apron at the airport and he saunters through the door. And there indeed are five union mates and he becomes the sixth. There's no need, of course, for any great documentation in those days. And in any case, his ticket was made out to Bill Bloggs, BLF union man. He flies to Perth with the union guys. And when he gets here, he says, see you later. Thanks, boys. And he went straight to one of the local universities. He stayed away from all underworld elements. He stayed away from drug dealers. He stayed away from thieves. He stayed away from all the bad guys because he knew that would lead to trouble. He went to the university and he went straight to the notice board where students put up advertisements for houses to let and student houses for rooms and things. And he got a room in a student house. 
And there he was with all these other students and eventually a couple of them, he let in on the secret of who he really was and they looked after him. And one of them said, take my passport and you can use it to go to New Zealand. Not that you actually needed a passport at that time to go to New Zealand, but it was better to have some documentation. So he took his mate's passport and he flew to New Zealand. And there he got a job, would you believe, at an all-night service station, one of the early ones over there. And he assures me that he foiled a robbery. He said a guy came in looking strung out. He knew that he was going to try and rob it, and he talked him out of it. <laughs> he went up the country in New Zealand. He grew a crop of dope on the quiet. And he, having grown the dope to its full height, he harvested the dope. This would be marijuana, alias cannabis. And he took a big, large pack full of dope and hitchhiked into one of the major cities. It would be Auckland or Wellington. And he turned it into cash. And his intention was to leave New Zealand by using this cash to buy documents and things, ID. And something went wrong and he was arrested. And he was thrown in the clink under a false name. And he realised that because his fingerprints were taken, that it was only a matter of days before news filtered through from Australia to the New Zealand coppers that this was the most wanted man in two countries. He was a multiple bank robber who'd escaped from Pentridge and was extremely hot. And he knew he had very little time to act. He somehow talked his way out of the jail. And I'm not sure whether he pulled that trick of getting hold of a drunk who'd come into the jail and swapping identity with him and leaving under a different name but he got his way out of jail just in time because just before he was identified he was out but then he was a wanted man and it was very tricky he had to spend a large amount of his dope stash cash on false uh, passports and things and he flew to India and that dear listeners was the end of the first part of the story of Doc Smith because the next part is that he spent 10 years on the lamb on two continents before his arrest in Germany a decade later. The coda of the story is that Doc Smith, under many other names, became a skilled smuggler and he claims that he worked across the borders of India into Pakistan and from Pakistan to Afghanistan, that he rode through the mountains with armed gunmen into Afghanistan, running drugs in and out of the countries, probably with the Taliban fighters because, of course, they would sell opium to raise money and he was part of that stuff. He claimed that he ended up in Africa running guns and drugs. He was an extremely skilled actor. He could assume any voice or any persona that he wished. And, of course, in India, he had access to the best fake ID that money could buy. Highly skilled artisans made fake passports in the 1980s and he indeed travelled the world. Uh, didn't come back to Australia, you'll note, but travelled the world and he used to travel regularly into Germany where he would run some drugs. And he was a musician as well as every other thing and he would play in German pubs and clubs on a guitar. But eventually the day came when he was arrested at an airport because there was a problem and he was thrown into jail in Germany with uh, some of the Beta Meinhof gang. And he said he got along very well with them because they were left-wing activists and they were, he said it was like Br'er Rabbit in the Briar Patch. He was felt quite at home with them. But eventually, of course, his true identity was revealed through Interpol and he had to serve some time in Germany, then fly home to Australia and serve some time in Australia. And then he wrote his best-selling book, Shantaram, 
which is a novel based heavily on his experiences in India as a smuggler. It's a fascinating novel. It has one of the best first pages I've ever read. It has many faults. It's overwritten. It's long. It's wordy. It's windy. It's boastful. It's obviously the work of somebody who has a personality disorder, and yet it is riveting, and it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Go figure. One last thing. We love doing these podcasts, and apparently you love them too. They're going really well. So if you want to go even better, please subscribe, and please review it on whatever platform it is that you're using. See you later. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother, It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.